While there is a growing sense of a light at the end of the COVID-19 tunnel, the impact of the global pandemic continues to be felt on every level of daily life. Despite this, calculating an accurate income tax provision remains a top priority for companies, and unfortunately, the pandemic has made it harder to do so than ever before. To help us unpack how COVID-19 has introduced unprecedented challenges for tax professionals putting the provision together, we'd like to welcome back Cross-Border Solutions tax provision expert, Howard Telson. Welcome back, Howard. Hey, Matt. Thanks for having me back. So, Howard, we'll get into the nitty gritty of its impact on tax provisions shortly. But what's unique about the COVID-19 pandemic in terms of its impact on businesses in general? I think there's multiple layers here as to how COVID has impacted companies kind of in general. I'd say we could probably break it down into a few different buckets. So so first off, and, and probably the most obvious, right, there's the core economic impact to businesses. So while there are, you know, a certain select number of companies who have been able to kind of financially withstand the pandemic, others, of course, you know, really most companies have not been able to withstand it and have really struggled. And their, their bottom lines are really taking a serious hit as a result. So when we think about these kind of unexpected losses and just the overall unpredictability in the business, you know, we could kind of see how this would really reverberate through a company's financials. And we'll see that the tax provision, you know, it doesn't escape this and it's really no exception. So that's number one. Number two is, you know, you look at the pandemic, you look at the struggles that companies face, and then you think about, well, what did governments do about it? How did governments respond? So, you know, the U.S. specifically passed a great deal of economic stimulus to kind of help companies and shepherd them through this. And in the U.S., we have measures such as the CARES Act. And there were also measures in, in foreign countries abroad to kind of help companies through this, this pandemic. And we'll get into a little bit of those. And we'll get into, you know, specifically in those measures, what were the kind of tax relief measures and how did those tax relief measures directly impact the provision? So we'll kind of touch upon that. And then finally, you know, apart from the financial side, there is just the new normal that has become the kind of remote workforce, right? Everyone working from home and how employees are collaborating remotely, and, and really what does that mean for the business? So we'll take a look at that and, and how that has impacted the provision kind of specifically, and, and just tax departments as a whole. You know, How are they coping with all this from a technological perspective? Now, despite mentioning that remote work, that low hum you hear right now is actually from my microphone cross-border went back into our <laughs> Terrytown offices today. But let's start with that first one you mentioned. It's one that everyone can understand, the economic impact. What do companies have to worry about in an uncertain economic environment when it comes to their provision? The first area that kind of comes to mind when we talk about this unpredictability is the quarterly provision or the interim provision, right? So we talked a little bit about, you know, previously how companies generally have to do provisions for four quarters throughout the year. And Q1, Q2, Q3 are or people generally refer to as the quarterly. And then Q4 is generally what people refer to as the annual. And there, there's so much we could go into on quarterly. And I think we'll, we'll touch base on a lot more about quarterly in future episodes. But just to give kind of a high-level overview... In general, quarterly provisions are calculating using a few well-defined steps. So first off, companies use full-year projections to calculate an effective tax rate, or in other words, they must project out their pre-tax book income and total tax expense for the full year, and then they divide that total tax expense by pre-tax book income to get a full-year projected effective tax rate. So even though they're in the quarter and the year hasn't concluded yet, 
they're projecting out these items to get to a full year projected effective tax rate. And then once they have that kind of full year projection in hand, they'll take that full year projected rate and they'll multiply that rate by actual year to date income of the company. And this is what yields the current year to date income tax expense to be recorded on the books and then the financial statements for that particular quarter. So for example, if you're in Q2, you would look at your results through Q2, through the, you know, the six months that happened during the year, and then you would project out the full year. So you would have six months of actual activity and then six months of a projected activity. You would calculate your effective tax rate based on that projection, the full year projection, and then you would apply that effective tax rate to the actual year-to-date income, you know, only those six months, only through Q2. So that's kind of the general rule to calculate a quarterly provision. And by the way, that's referred to as a FIN18 approach based on the old standard that kind of laid out these rules. And already looking at that sort of quarterly way of looking at things, we can already see how that's just so impossible to achieve. When we look back on how we all were looking at how 2020 would go as of you know March to May last year. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. You hit the nail on the head. So basically, you know, in a normal year, companies could kind of say, you know, this is what my usual activity is. This is the way the business is trending. I have a long history of the business kind of trending like this. I have a long history of earnings that I can kind of refer to. And based on all this history and what I kind of predict in the future, I could kind of project out what's going to happen for the rest of the year and make pretty reliable projections. But here... With COVID, you know, you have this huge unforeseen event and all of a sudden, you know, even the most predictable businesses kind of became unpredictable and they can't really estimate income out for the year. So then the question is, well, what do you do? So generally a company, if they can't use reliable projections, if they can't rely upon the projections because of some unforeseen circumstance like COVID, what they have to do is basically calculate what's called a year to date effective tax rate. So what this would involve is basically just looking at actual data. If we go back to my Q2 example, we have six months of data. You basically, you can't use any projections, you know, because really you're not going to be able to figure out what these projections even mean. So you're just using actual year-to-date data. So you calculate your actual year-to-date tax expense. You divide it by your actual year-to-date pre-tax book income. And that's how you get to your, you know, essentially actual year-to-date rate. And you don't even calculate any forecasted rate. A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai/rd. That's xbs.ai/rd. Let me give you another scenario. What happens if a company 
can make reliable projections and use the estimated annual ETR approach, but they have some unusual event that occurs related to COVID, how would they handle this in their provision? So this is very typical. So so let's just say a company is using the kind of standard FIN18 approach, which estimates, you know, out their projected annual effective tax rate. And then, you know, maybe an unusual or frequent item kind of comes along and impacts the provision. So this has happened to many companies over the course of time, and COVID is kind of no exception. But I'll give kind of a more specific example to kind of walk through what this means. So let's just say a company had a bunch of debt on their books prior to COVID, right? Before COVID, they had some loans out and they were using those funds to kind of run the business. And they had no problem paying down the interest on those loans and, and even paying down some principal over time. So it was, it was kind of business as usual. You know, companies take out debt all the time and they were kind of handling that properly. But then COVID hit. And all of a sudden their revenue dried up and they didn't have the cash to kind of continue paying down their debt. So they, they couldn't really continue paying off their loans and, you know, the banks are kind of like looking for their money back. So what do they do? They go to the bank or, you know, whoever their lender is and they say, you know, can we rework out this debt? Could we, could we come up with some negotiations to kind of, you know, help us out and ultimately help the bank out, you know, coming up with terms that really make sense and kind of will work out in the future. So after some kind of, you know, back and forth with the bank, Ultimately, the bank agrees and, you know, this company works out a deal to restructure their debt. So as part of this restructuring, which it happens, you know, from time to time in the course of regular business, it really happens often in COVID. But, you know, during this, the company would have incurred some significant expenses. So I think, you know, they would have to get lawyers involved to negotiate this. They would have to get accountants involved, bankers involved. So really incurring a lot of expenses. And the question is, you know, assuming all else is equal and you could really project out all your results, but you had this one item that was kind of out there as an extraordinary item, you know, what do you do? So your, your options are one, you could just kind of throw these costs in with all your other costs and just feed them into your annual projections and your annual tax calculation. But, but generally this isn't the way it works. And this isn't the way that the standards really dictate the way that this is how it should be done. So what you do instead is since this kind of item is truly unusual and infrequent, you generally have to account for it when it is incurred fully. So, so let's say this item was incurred in Q2, you wouldn't put it into your projection and kind of have a portion of it done pro rata throughout the year. You would just put it all in Q2 to run it through fully at once. So kind of mechanically, when you look at your projection, you say, you know, this is my full year projection that includes everything. And then you have to take out the pieces related to this kind of extraordinary item, these kind of expenses related to the debt reworking. And then you calculate your estimated annual effective tax rate. So it's sort of like you have your base in there that has all your estimates. You take out this special item and then you get to your, your true base, your kind of, you know, normal base estimated annual effective tax rate. And then once you're kind of comfortable with that, now you could layer in the impact of, of this debt restructuring. And, and what this is usually referred to, it's usually called the discrete item. So discrete in that it only impacts kind of one quarter and you need to isolate that impact into a quarter as opposed to putting the impact of such item into your full year projection and having it be basically allocated pro rata throughout the year in your projection. Instead, you would, you would put that full impact of the item in one quarter 
and this is one of the reasons why quarterly provisions are you know somewhat difficult or a little bit tricky sometimes is because you know you kind of need to identify these items that should be in your projected annual effective tax rate and then the items that shouldn't be and you know these items that shouldn't be the discrete items you need to pull them out and kind of treat them separately and that, and that's unique to quarterly especially you know when you think about annual everything that kind of happens during the year is in the annual so you don't really need to dissect, you know, what's kind of unique to the quarter and what is, you know, isn't. Everything's just kind of in there all at once. So that's what kind of makes quarterly a little bit, you know, more difficult there. Pardon the expression, but this sort of like Las Vegas functionality of, you know, what happened in that quarter stays in that quarter. That's that's very interesting um, <laughs> in just in terms of, of tax practice. Is there any other functionality or any other items like discrete items that can be used in the context of the quarter and that's it? I'll give kind of one more example specific to quarterly and, and especially, you know, related to, to COVID now. So let's say a company is using this, this FIN 18 projected annual ETR approach, but they're in a loss position, right? So like so many companies right now, you know, who are really struggling, they're, they're in a loss position as in their expenses exceed their revenue. You know, they're in a net loss position. So if this is the case and their year to date loss for their particular quarter that they're working in, is larger than their estimated loss for the entire year, then the company may need to consider kind of an exception to the rule. And before I get into this exception, let me let me just take a step back as to, you know, and really define what I mean here. So when we think about, you know, if we go back to Q2 again, and we think about a company kind of estimating their pre-tax book income for the year, they're saying, you know, at that point in time, they're likely in a loss position and they they project out for the rest of the year what their income or loss is going to be. And then they look at their year-to-date operations to date, and they say, okay, we're in a loss position on a year-to-date basis. However, our year-to-date loss, the loss we've incurred so far, we think is higher than the estimated loss for the entire year, essentially because a business would think it's going to come back in the second half of the year. So it's not an uncommon fact pattern. So first six months, they really struggle. They incurred a big loss. And then second six months, you know, they're optimistic and they think they could really come back. So therefore, they have this kind of year-to-date loss sitting out there, which is bigger than their estimated loss for the entire year. So this creates kind of this tricky situation of, you know, you have this, this big loss sitting out there for actual and then a smaller loss sitting out there for your kind of estimated full year. So because of this kind of weird area, there's an exception to the accounting rules as to how you treat this. It limits the tax benefit in a quarter you're in to the tax benefit you would get on the forecasted estimated loss, so the full year estimated loss. So in other words, like since a company is in a loss position, they would record a tax benefit. So as opposed to tax expense, they would record a benefit as in, you know, really income to a company as opposed to expense. And this exception basically says if you're in this case and your actual year-to-date loss is bigger than your estimated loss, we're going to cap your benefit because they don't want to kind of overstate income. As, as we talked about, you know, financial statements are meant to be kind of conservative. And the whole thing with financial statements is you don't want companies overstating income. So this rule is basically saying you could only take your tax benefit based on the projection, which is a lower loss than you've actually had so far in the year. So it really kind of goes back to the core theory that financial statements are generally conservative towards income. And then, you know, kind of tax returns, if, if we think about the other side of the coin, 
are more kind of conservative towards expenses. So they don't want you kind of overstating expenses, but financial statements really don't want you overstating income. So if you're in this position where you have this kind of tax benefit, you may need to limit it under this exception. Now, the tax rules wouldn't be what they are if not for full of exceptions and then full of changes to the rules. So this one's no different. So this was kind of the exception that was around for many years. And in, then in 2019, so a couple of years ago, they came out with this, the regulars kind of came out with this accounting standard update. So basically, you know, essentially a rule change that the accounting authorities came out with. And it's known as ASU 2019-12, which essentially served to remove this exception. However, you know, one thing to note is, you know, right now we're in 2021 and many companies haven't adopted this standard yet. So this exception still does apply to many. Public companies generally adopted it first, uh, actually starting this year, so starting in 2021. But private companies generally aren't required to adopt it until next year. So this kind of strange exception is around for many, many companies still. Now, just off the bat there, that, that seems like a really good place for things to start getting confusing. Are there any items related to both annual and quarterly provisions for these companies who, who got hit hard by the pandemic to consider? One area that definitely comes to mind, especially during these kind of difficult times, is something called a valuation allowance. So, you know, it's, it's really a topic for kind of a, a full future episode. And, and I think, you know, in the future, we will get to an episode kind of focused on valuation allowances. But just at the highest level, you know, what is a valuation allowance? It, it really serves, it's, it's a mechanism that serves to reduce the value of a company's deferred tax assets. As we've kind of spoken about in the past, Deferred tax assets are items on the balance sheet that represent future tax benefits for a company. So these essentially include temporary book to tax differences that will result in future tax deductions and and then tax attributes like an NOL, net operating loss, or a tax credit, a carry forward of these items, which also serve to reduce future tax expense. So it's pretty much any item that a company has that's going to reduce tax expense in the future. So that could be, as I said, temporary timing items or attributes like NOLs or credits. So since these kind of deferred tax assets represent these future benefits, and you know, as we kind of just spoke about before, financial statements are generally very conservative and don't want to overstate income, or, and they also don't want to overstate assets, this kind of mechanism of evaluation allowance is really necessary to ensure that assets are kind of appropriately valued. So, you know, as I mentioned, a valuation allowance basically reduces the value of a deferred tax asset of a company. So this is really the mechanism to get to how you appropriately value these deferred tax assets. So just kind of digging in a little bit further, what exactly is a valuation allowance and and how do you get to it? And the answer is, first off, when do you need it? So the answer really is it must be recognized to the extent it's more likely than not. And by more likely than not, I mean there's a greater than 50% chance that some or all deferred tax assets will not be realized. So there's various criteria and types of evidence that companies need to look at to kind of make this determination, which you know we would cover at length in kind of evaluation allowance episode. But essentially, it really comes down to companies must have sufficient income in the future to recognize their deferred tax assets. So in other words, they must have sufficient income in the future so that they really get a benefit from these assets. And if a company didn't have income in the future and they were in a loss position, their tax deductions and lost credit carry forwards would essentially go to waste 
and not produce any any true cash benefit, right? So if we think about, you know, another example, let's just say a company, you know, had this large kind of NOL carry forward and credit carry forward, and then they, and then they were in a big DTA position and they were entitled to future tax deductions. But then in the future, when you kind of look forward, year after year, they're just in a loss position. Well, you know, the way the rules work in general is that you don't pay income tax unless you're in an income position. So if you're in a loss position, you're not subject to income tax. That's, you know, just the way the rules work and it, and it kind of makes sense, right? So if you don't earn any income, you're not going to have to pay any income tax. So the point of this rule is saying that if you have a deferred tax asset, the financial statements want to say that this is a true asset that you're going to get a benefit on in the future. And if you're really not going to get a benefit on it in the future because you're constantly in a loss position and it's never going to help you reduce your tax bill because your tax bill is always zero, then it's really not worth anything. And therefore, you kind of need to reduce that deferred tax asset position by this valuation allowance to get to what it's truly worth, which is potentially zero. If you're, you know, if you're never going to be in an income position, you're never going to have to pay tax again. There's really no benefit of having this asset on your books. Just kind of with this background kind of in hand, if we circle back to COVID for a second, you know, if we think about the companies who are going to hit hard by the pandemic and you know, maybe had big losses or really even expect more pain to come in the future, these companies really need to reassess their valuation allowance positions and, and see, can they still support their deferred tax assets as usable in the future or not? And if they kind of take a look at this and decide that they really do need a valuation allowance and they need to reduce the amount of their deferred tax assets, then they're going to need to record one. And then, you know, there's all these questions as to timing as to when do you record one? You kind of, when do you hit this threshold of when you need it versus when you don't? And it's kind of a, a very important event for a company because when you record a valuation allowance, you actually increase a company's tax expense. And the mechanism to which this works is a little bit confusing and, you know, definitely subject for that future episode. And you would also increase their effective tax rate. So it's kind of this result that isn't generally great for a company. And that's why companies, you know, are often very hesitant to record valuation allowances. And, you know, this, this COVID pandemic may have kind of accelerated some of that for companies that they really need to look in that and they really need to feel comfortable with whether or not they have a valuation allowance. And if they don't have one, they need to prove why they don't have one. And if they have one, they need to prove, you know, why that, that still makes sense, basically. So that seems to cover the big picture for economic impact on the provision. Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern-day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country-specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University Weekly. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai slash tpu. 
What about the government response? I know many of the tax relief measures enacted were temporary. So is there anything companies still need to consider on their 2021 tax provisions? Yeah, it's a good question. And, and, you know, when we kind of think about throughout the world, right, governments enacted quite a few provisions for COVID relief. And and certainly income tax was, was no exception. There was, you know, many provisions around the world kind of directly related to income tax. So, so for now, we'll just kind of focus, hone in on the U.S. And one of the pieces of legislation kind of in the U.S. That, to help with COVID was, was something known as the CARES Act. And it was passed pretty early on in the pandemic, you know, March 2020. And, and a few of the main provisions for income tax specifically that really impacted a lot of companies is this CARES Act provided companies the ability to utilize 100% of their net operating loss carry forwards against taxable income. And that's opposed to the 80% limitation that was previously in place. So previously, if a company generated an NOL and they were able to carry it forward and and use that to offset future income, they were limited to using that NOL to offset only 80% of that future income. And this act essentially allowed them to use the full boat and offset 100% of income. So, So that was one. Another one was this CARES Act allowed companies to carry back their NOLs to prior years as opposed to only carrying it forward to future years. So, for example, if a company generated a loss in 2020, prior to this CARES Act, they would just have to carry it forward to the future years, like 2021, 2022. But this act essentially allowed them to potentially carry it back. So they could have carried it back to, you know, 2019 or 2018 or even 2017. And they could have offset, you know, prior years taxable income with these losses, which was a really nice benefit for a lot of companies. And then the, the last one to kind of mention is this CARES Act increased the interest expense limitation, something known as 163J. Previously, it was a, a 30% limitation uh, surrounding your income, and, and it spiked it up to a 50% limitation, which basically helped companies essentially deduct more interest expense than, than they're you know, used to. But, you know, kind of when we hone in on each of the provisions here, they were generally temporary in nature, you know, as, as, as Matt, as you kind of mentioned. And, and for 2021, each of these changes essentially goes away. The rules kind of revert back to their original state, you know, pre-CARES Act. So it's important for companies to realize this and, and ensure that their provision models and all their work papers kind of are updated to reflect, you know, going back to the rules pre-CARES Act. So that's number one. And then number two is kind of outside of the CARES Act, thinking back to, you know, what else kind of is important for the 2021 provision outside of these measures that kind of reverted back in 2021. So outside of this stuff that kind of goes away, what's here to stay in 2021 or really making an impact into your 21 provision? So the first one to mention here is the PPP loans, which have kind of made a lot of news, the Paycheck Protection Program loans. So we won't get into all the details around the PPP loans because, you know, that could be a whole episode in and of itself. But basically, you know, I just wanted to mention the fact that the Relief Act passed at the end of 2020 provided that both the income from the loans is exempt from being taxable. So the income is not taxable. And the expenses that were paid with the loans proceeds are deductible. So basically, you know, it's kind of a win-win where the money you're taking in from the loans, you don't have to pay tax on. And then whatever you use those funds for, you know, the expenses that you use to pay off with those loan proceeds are deductible as well. So, you know, it's basically a win-win. And a lot of companies were worried about they were going to kind of get whiplash on this because 
they were going to get this, you know, kind of nice loan coming in. But then anytime they spent the dollar on the loan for an expense, they wouldn't be able to deduct that. So it's sort of like you're lessening the benefit the companies would get. But thankfully, you know, the government passed this measure at the end of 2020 and companies could deduct the expenses related to the loans. So when we think about a 2021 tax provision, you know, companies could have proceeds from the PPP loans coming in, which for book purposes are income. So for accounting purposes, that money coming in, those proceeds coming in for the loans would be income. But then for tax purposes, they're exempt. So they're not income. So what does that mean? If we kind of go back to, you know, provision 101, you know, one of the first episodes, we kind of talked about permanent and temporary differences. So this would be a permanent difference. This would be a permanent M1 adjustment that is favorable and it reduces taxable income. So that's number one. But then if we kind of go back to the quarterly considerations, since, you know, we've, we've discussed plenty on quarterly today and seen how fun they could be, um, we would have to think about, you know, is this a discrete item? Is this an extraordinary item that should be kind of pulled out from our annual projection and treated specifically in a quarter? Or could this be part of our estimated annual ETR? And it seems like this would probably be a discrete item in most cases, but each company would kind of need to evaluate that and consider, you know, based on their own facts, what makes sense to them. So that's another big one. I'll, I'll give you one more item that could really have a big impact on the 2021 provision. And this one's one of the simpler ones, but this is just meals deductions. So, you know, companies generally get a deduction for meals. They used to get a deduction for entertainment. Entertainment expenses are generally not deductible anymore after uh, 2017 tax reform kind of disallowed that deduction. But meals kind of, even after tax reform in 2017, they kind of kept their character generally being 50% deductible. So if you've incurred $100 of meals, generally you could deduct $50 of them. So 50% deductible. With the COVID relief measures, one passed at the end of 2020, basically said that companies, rather than deducting just the 50% of meals, for years 2021 and 2022, they could deduct 100%. And it's only meals related to items purchased at a restaurant, but you know that definition is, is fairly broad. So basically, at any meals purchased at a restaurant in 2021 and 2022, you get 100% deduction on. So you know what does that really mean for your provision? So besides the kind of positive cash impact it'll play to kind of you know drive your tax bill down, on your provision, you get a nice rate benefit as well because you have this you know, item of meals that used to kind of drive your rate up, that used to be a permanent unfavorable item. You would get a full deduction, you know, full expense for book purposes, but then you would only get a partial deduction for tax purposes. And now the book and tax expenses, the book expense and the tax deduction are essentially equal. So it wouldn't impact your, your rate reconciliation at all here. So you know, if you're kind of looking at your rate reconciliation year over year and saying, you know, what changed, this could be one of the big changes and one of the things kind of helping bring your rate down a bit. So that one was a nice benefit. So we've covered a lot of ground so far, both discussing the economic impacts on the provision, along with how the government response really plays a role. Stepping away from more of the technical and focusing on the technology side, how has the pandemic caused tax departments to change their provision process? And what should companies be thinking about from a technology perspective here? Now, I'd say prior to COVID, a, a lot of companies were trending in the right direction when it came to updating their technology, you know, about with their provision and kind of moving away from the old way of doing things. So, 
you know, many years ago, provisions were kind of done with paper binders and manual printouts and, you know, a lot of manual items and manual labor and not much automation and not much kind of innovation. But companies, you know, even before COVID, were kind of starting to trend in the right direction. And then what COVID did was they took this kind of slow moving process that was positively going, you know, kind of in the right direction. And it really accelerated it. So now, you know, with most folks working remotely and very few people kind of in the same place, you know, these paper binders and these manual printouts kind of were forced to become a thing of the past. And now you have folks kind of heavily relying on electronic files. So, so definitely a good start, you know, kind of relying on pretty much doing everything electronically, which is definitely a step in the right direction. And then you have companies who, you know, even took it a step further and who are relying on more of, you know, a secure shared workspace to kind of collaborate and share files rather than kind of sending things over email, which is a version control nightmare and a security nightmare as well. So, you know, those are a couple of the positives, but when we think about, you know, the provision holistically, even with COVID kind of changing remote work as drastically as it did, and for a lot of companies changing the file sharing process and making it more secure and more efficient process, but we still have, you know, a ton of companies, really most companies, still kind of stuck in Excel doing their provision. So, you know, parts of the process have improved and then parts of the process have still kind of stagnated. Right. So this process, you know, really gets tested and really gets pressure tested even further when people kind of aren't in the same location. So there becomes, you know, if you're in an Excel environment, you have issues with version control. You have issues with proper sign-offs and review. And you have issues with your internal controls, you know, kind of sticking to a process. It becomes a lot harder when everyone's kind of apart and just kind of, you know, potentially sending files over email, or potentially even if it's on like a SharePoint site, it's still difficult to kind of track, you know, who reviewed what, who did what. If you have an Excel work paper with, with a ton of tabs, it becomes even harder to track. So, you know, kind of your processes start to break down even further kind of in a remote work environment. And then when you put like a time pressure on top of it, you know, we've talked about before kind of at length on how important time is in, in the provision and how much that pressure really, you know, weighs down tax departments. So it, it really starts to take a toll. And, you know, some people have tried to kind of correct that. Some people are using Excel online, you know, kind of the live version of Excel, which, which definitely helps. And you kind of see who's, who's in the file, who's doing what, kind of divide and conquer, which which definitely is, you know, another step in the right direction, but it still isn't quite the right, you know, controlled environment. And it's still not providing the, the maximum amount of efficiency that, you know, say a good software solution would. So, you know, I, I do think COVID to a certain extent has kind of been a wake up call for a lot of companies to begin thinking about their processes in general and consider kind of shifting their provision over to, you know, a newer age solution and potentially, you know, of a more secure, efficient software solution. So, you know, where you have remote work, it may not really, you know, hinder the process as much if you're on a software solution and your internal controls can kind of hold strong and, and remain in place. And you could still kind of still have those efficiencies between, you know, collaboration and, and sharing, you know, even more so in a software environment than you could, you know, in Excel or another type of environment. So that seems to be, you know, a trend we're kind of seeing is, you know, it's been a bit of a wake-up call for tax departments. And it seems like people are, are generally starting to move in the right direction when it comes to a lot of this stuff. Of course. And always looking forward to the point where 
the usual stress level that came with provision is restored, uh, you know, pre-pandemic or at least to pre-pandemic levels. And just to summarize what we've covered today, COVID has made the tax provision even more challenging, particularly when it comes to making accurate projections necessary in quarterly provision. Valuation allowances have also become a key calculation due to the difficulties businesses are facing and the financial losses many are expecting. The situation has also made disclosures in financial statements even more important as they can provide clarity on unusual events that occurred due to the pandemic. And the U.S. government's response to the pandemic has and will continue to have an impact on the provision as well, particularly in temporary changes to net operating losses, interest limitation, and new deductions for companies to consider. Note to multinational companies everywhere, if you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, big four. We've got the answer. Cross-Border Solutions AI-powered transfer pricing software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate, hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits, penalties, and adjustments. And our technology is available for one flat fee, a fraction of what you'd pay a big-name consultant. Again, apologies, Big Four. Stay in compliance and on budget with Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven transfer pricing software. It's no wonder we're the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. There we go again. I'm so sorry, Big. You know, Wait, wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of cross-border solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp. That's xbs.ai slash tp. Welcome back, everyone. We want to thank Howard. Howard, thank you so much for being with us again on the show. Thanks, Matt. Really appreciate the time. We are also thanking everyone at home for joining us. Don't forget to check out the entire suite of Cross-Border Solutions tax podcasts on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. This podcast was hosted by Matthew DeMello, edited and produced by Matthew DeMello and Andrew O'Donnell. Stephen Markow is our associate producer and writes our scripts. We'll catch everyone next time. <laughs>